Well, good morning, Oakwood. Thank you for being here this morning. I appreciate you all coming today. Can you look at someone around you and say, tell them thank you for being here? I'm going to let you guys in on a secret. Obviously, you guys don't know. Often when the pastor's away, not everyone shows up. So I appreciate you being here today because after all, I've already heard this message several times this week. So hopefully this time it'll go better than all those other times. So, so I appreciate you being here. And for those of you watching at home on the internet, I'd like to thank you for joining us. And if, if you guys don't mind, I've got to give a shout out to all my friends out there. Because I'm sure at least one of them signed on this morning. <clears throat> no, hopefully I have a good friend, Jimmy, who's watching this morning. And uh, I appreciate him signing in if he's there this morning. And uh, me and Jimmy, we go way back. You know, we go so far, it's B.C., before BC, that's how long our relationship goes back. That's before either of us had Christ in our life. And what's really interesting is uh, today when we were together, often our conversations are about God or about Jesus in our life and what he's doing. And that is so far from where we were before. And so I'm just grateful that I have that relationship with him and then uh, hopefully he gets to sign in this morning. So, so God is good. And all the time. So the pastor's away. He's in Hawaii, and as Ben mentioned, he does like to text us, I think, at 1.30 in the morning. So if, hopefully you don't keep your phone <clears throat> near your bed or anything, otherwise you would, would have got that message this morning. And, and uh, before the pastor was uh, going to Hawaii, he likes to keep in touch with the elders. You know, so he sends us messages all the time, and you guys know he's been having all that back trouble. So he sends out a message to us, and he's, he's wanting to get to Hawaii, and he's going to need some help. He's telling us, hey, I'm, I'm going to need you guys to step up. <clears throat> I'm going to go try to get to Hawaii, and I'm really going to need you guys' help. So as soon as I see that message come across, I respond right away. I let him know. Pastor, I can carry your bags. <laughs> it didn't matter. Beach bag, picnic bag, scuba bag. I got it covered. I can carry your bags. You know what? He turned me down. He turned me down before I even talked about who was going to pay my way. So he sent back, I was really looking for someone that who could preach. And I thought, oh, well, I guess I can do that. And at that time, it was, we were only doing one service, right? Yeah, I could preach one service. I can get up there and tell about Jesus in my life. So, so when we meet, he tells us, oh, yeah, we're going back to two services. And by the way, you got to pick up in Romans where I left off. So, I don't know about you guys, but if you look at Romans verse by verse, our pastor does an excellent job. Because when I had to look at it verse by verse, I don't know how he does it. How he can carry these messages, sometimes difficult topics, with such grace and love. So today... I'm going to need you to extend that same grace and love to me. So I'll do my best today, but I'm going to need your help. So with that, let's pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, we just come to you this morning in the name of Jesus. Lord, you are such an awesome God and worthy of our praise today, Lord. So Lord, as I preach your message from the book of Romans, Lord, may the Holy Spirit just use me today. May you calm my spirit, my words just flow, and your message be delivered to your people. I ask this in your precious name, Jesus. Amen. For those of you who don't know me, my name is Bruce Paris, and I am one of the elders here, and I've been here for a long time. 
Um, I've been here. They're giving me instructions already. I'm not exactly sure, but I think I know what it is. <laughs> so I've been here for a long time. Um, me and my family, excuse me, <laughs> I might get emotional today. Me and my family have been coming to Oakwood that working uh, for around 30 years. And um, I'm joined this morning by my beautiful wife, Shireen. My two boys are probably home in bed still. And we have an adult daughter, Danielle, who used to attend Oakwood. So. <clears throat> Okay. Gospel urgency. Do you have a heart condition? So when you look at Romans 2, 17 through 29, you can wrap it up pretty quickly, and we can all get out of here this morning. <clears throat> it's a condition of the heart. And I don't know if anybody out there has ever had a heart condition, Anybody ever have a medical heart condition? <clears throat> so you know what it feels like when they tell you you have a medical heart condition. The heart condition doesn't matter how old you are, whether you're male or female, what race you are. Anybody can have a heart condition. And the thing about it is, you can have a heart condition at any time. And you can have a heart condition without even knowing it. But on some of us, sometimes we know we have a heart condition. Or sometimes we think we have a heart condition. So personally, I've been having some health issues over the last few months. Excuse me. So doctors really haven't been able to really tell me what's wrong with me other than I have a virus. And they say it's a reactivation of a virus that I had when I was a kid. So none of this makes a lot of sense to them, and it certainly doesn't make any sense to me. And you know how we all got our own medical experts nowadays, like <clears throat> WebMD, Google. You can look up anything you want. You know, most of the time, I don't know what those words are, so I'm, I'm on my phone. I'm always looking up. See, what does it say? <clears throat> so I was having some difficulties on a Saturday. It's a Saturday before Easter. There is no way you want to go to the ER on the Saturday before Easter, right? Because when you're my age, you start thinking, they're going to keep you. doesn't really matter what's wrong with you. They're just going to keep you. So we end up at the hospital. Of course, I fought, sought wise counsel before I went, right? <clears throat> I call a couple of my friends in the, hospital, uh, in the church. They're in the medical field. <clears throat> so I call my friend Pam, tell her what's going on. She tells me, well, going to urgent care isn't going to help you. They want to do a CAT scan. You're going to have to go to the ER. Okay, hang up the phone. So I call my other friend, Rich, give him my symptoms. He gave me the same answer. You're going to have to go to the ER. Okay, so after two of them both said I need to go to the ER, I was in a lot of pain, so I ended up at the hospital. So you walk in and you tell them you're having a pain in your side. And I've been having a lot of these symptoms on and off for about 15 weeks now. Sometimes my left arm goes numb. So if you go in the hospital, tell me you have a pain in your side and your left arm thumb and you're over the age of 60, they're going to give you an EKG. And I mean, they're going to give you one as soon as you walk in. So they give me the EKG. It's okay. They check all my vitals. They're not too bad. So they send me in the waiting room. And this is the last place I want to be 
So I sent out message to the elders, I need prayer. And they're used to that. I'm always needing prayer. So we end up at the hospital, young doctor. And by this time, I had already had several blood tests. I even had a blood work done on that Friday. So nowadays, my arms are bruised. As you can see, I have a couple of bruises from a test this past week. So they run all their tests. Tells me he's going to give me a CAT scan, a lower CAT scan, just to the bottom of my heart. And I'm thinking, well, why don't you just go another six inches and get the whole thing? Right? Let's get this done. I'm already here. So they do, they do the CAT scan. We spend about six hours at the hospital. They come back, scratching their head. And say, yeah, we can't find anything wrong with you. And he goes, none of these symptoms seem to line up. So he gives me his expert opinion of what was wrong. And so they're going to send me home. So if you're getting get out of the hospital the night before Easter, do you know how good you feel? You've been in the hospital for the last six hours. They have you on some meds. They gave you an IV. You walk out of there and you are flying. Like, I'm going home. I'm going to church. I can't wait to get out of here. About an hour after I left the hospital, I finally realized you're still not well. So I made it to East, the church on Easter, and I was not feeling well, but I made it that day, got to see family, and of course I changed my diet, so my brother-in-law gave me a hard time at Easter dinner that I'm not eating anything, you know. He goes, are you eating like a rabbit? Well, that's kind of what's on my diet nowadays. So the doctor assured me on that Saturday that I didn't have a heart condition. So that's all it takes, right? Tell me I'm okay and I'm going to be okay. Pretty simple. So the Sunday after Easter, I don't remember if you guys know this, it snowed. And it snowed a lot. It was a real wet snow. Nice, deep, heavy snow. And being the adult I am, I came home from my wife and go, let's go out and make a snowman. Right? That's what every 60-year-old does when they come home after work. Let's go out and make a snowman. So we go out, we're making a snowman. It's really good packing snow, right? You never know when you might not be able to make a snowman again. So we go out, and it's not five minutes into me rolling this snowball. Of course, you know, I'm going to roll a big snowball, and my wife's rolling hers, and we're put it together. Then I got to go sit down. I'm sit down on the patio, and I am out of breath. So if it happens to me this morning, I get out of breath, it's probably nothing. I'm out of breath, and I got to sit down. So I can't believe it. If I feel my heart, you know, it feels like it's pounding, I can't have a hard time breathing, get back up. Of course, I don't go in the house, right? I got to finish the snowman. We already started. So we go, we finish the snowman. <clears throat> Doctor already told me my heart's fine, right? But that was on a Saturday, and this is Monday. Apparently, between a Saturday and Monday, a lot can happen. So we finish the snowman, of course, take pictures of it. Of course, me standing next to it with my shovel. So finally, I sent that picture to PD, and then by later on, I had to tell him, by the way, I wasn't shoveling snow. So apparently, if you're over the age of 60, and you're out in cold weather, and you end up at the ER again because you have chest pain, your arm's numb, and the side of your face is going numb, they think you're having a heart attack. So they rush me in, same routine. They got me in quick. I get the EKG. They check my vitals. They're better than when I was here on Saturday. So they're kind of like not in a hurry, but I'm pretty anxious, right? And I don't know. I guess apparently people don't show up at the hospital between Good Friday and Easter. So come Monday, they are crowded. So my wife's parking the car. They put me in this waiting room. And everybody, you know, everybody's got a mask on. People are coming in sick. And it's like, oh, no, 
I don't want to be here. I might leave here sicker than when I walked in the door. So you get pretty anxious while you're waiting there. So they asked you what your pain level was, and I told them I was at about a six. So the lady that checked me, and I see her going by, so I start waving my hand to her. I know how to speed this up. She comes over, what's the matter? I go, I'm at a nine. <laughs> you're at a nine? I go, yeah, I'm at a nine now. No, seriously, the pain would went up, but I also knew at a nine, they're going to move me forward. So sure enough, they come and get me, and uh, as I'm, they're taking me to a room, praise the Lord, this is my second time in the hospital in two, uh, a few days, and I'm getting a room. Because there are people in the hallway and the ER at the hospital everywhere. And they're hooked up to all kinds of stuff. They get me in another room. In comes a, a nurse. She tells me she's new to the ER. So sure enough, she can't get a needle in my arm to give me an IV. So she's digging in this arm, and then finally someone else comes and puts it in this arm. Doctor comes in, and sure, this lady was much wiser than the gentleman I had on Saturday. Because she looks at me, and she starts reading all the blood work I've had done. She goes, You've had all this blood work done and you're here again? You were just here Saturday. So they look at my arms. <laughs> I had given blood work on Friday, been in the hospital on Saturday, and my arms are all bruised up, and they look at me like, are you sure you're not doing anything you shouldn't be doing? <laughs> so then they start questioning me. <laughs> they send someone else in to make sure that my mental health is okay. And for those of you who know me, I think Jimmy can attest to this, right? My mental health is never okay. <laughs> so they send him in, and they check on me. So we're there to, again, the whole routine again. It was good for my wife. We got to watch American Idol together that evening. <laughs> so the whole time, PD's praying that they can find something this time, that they will, someone will come, and they will find what's wrong. We'll get to the bottom of this. For myself, I'm just praying they don't find a thing wrong, and I get out of here again. So sure enough, we'll go through the whole gamut, Doctor says a bunch of stuff to me and says, there's nothing wrong with your heart. Works for me. I'm, I'm fine. Let me get out of here. But you need to follow up with your cardiologist. So, so I went through that, followed up with the cardiologist, and they come to one conclusion. My heart's okay. So medically speaking, my heart is okay. So that's good news, right? Praise the Lord. But spiritually speaking... That's always another topic for us. And spiritually speaking, what's the big idea today from Romans 2, 17 through 29? Heart condition. Do you have a heart condition? What's the condition of your spiritual heart? And for me, it seems to fluctuate often sometimes by how much stress I have, what I'm doing. But I know my spiritual heart condition is the same as my medical condition. I'm not in the place I was, but I'm not where I want to be. So medically speaking, I am nowhere where I was 15 weeks ago. Praise the Lord. But I am certainly not where I want to be. And spiritually, I'm not where I was where I walked into church 30 years ago. 30 years ago, I couldn't get up here, and they wouldn't want me to. But today, I can. And that's through the grace of God. So, a spiritual heart condition, it doesn't matter what age you are. It doesn't matter if you're a Jew or a Gentile. It doesn't matter how long you've been coming to church. What's your spiritual heart condition? So today, we're going to take a look at Romans 2.17-29. We'll try to do this verse by verse. 
But Paul repeats several times the same message he's trying to get across. Because apparently, these Jews, they're a lot like myself. Just because you tell me the first time doesn't mean I hear you. And just because I heard you doesn't mean I get it. And just because I get it doesn't mean I want it. So as we look at these verses today, we'll see that sometimes we're very similar to the Jewish people of that time. Paul had just finished talking about God's judgment for Gentiles. People under the requirements of the law. Paul turns this case he's making to the Jewish people who do live under the law. Paul looks those religious people in the eye and calls them out. Have you guys ever been called out for anything? We always like it when someone else is called out, right? Let's say you have a coworker who's, you know, he never shows up on time, he doesn't get his work. Everybody knows it, but no one ever says anything. And then there's that one day, they finally, the boss is finally going to say something to them. Or if you've been on a sports team at some time, you know the kid that's always loafing. And you're always waiting for the coach to say something to him. And we're always in the background cheer when we find out, right? We're like, finally, they're going to say something about him. And I'm sure growing up, your siblings, when the parents were going to yell at them, you're in the background cheering, your sibling could see you, mom and dad couldn't see you, right? But you're back there, yeah, give it to them. Well, this is sort of how the Jewish people had been. Paul had been talking about the Gentiles. And they were all in the background saying, yeah, Paul, give it to them. And he finally looks to them and says, it's your turn. So when Paul looks to them and tells them, it's your turn. Romans 2, 17 through 29. We're going to read, or I'm going to read. You can follow along and read with me. I'm going to read all 17 through 29 for you. Now you, if you call yourself a Jew, if you rely on the word and boast in God, if you know his will and approve of what is superior because you are instructed by the law, if you are convinced that you are a guide for the blind, a light for those who are in the dark, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of little children, because you have the law, the embodiment of knowledge and truth, you then, who teach others, do you not teach yourself? You who preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that people should not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who harbor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law, do you dishonor God by breaking the law? As it is written, God's name is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. Excuse me. Circumcision has value if you observe the law. But if you break the law, you come as though you have not been circumcised. So then, if those who are circumcised keep the law's requirements, will they not be regarded as those who were circumcised? The one who is not circumcised physically and obeys the law will condemn you, who even though you have the written code and circumcision, are a lawbreaker. A person is not a Jew who is one word outly, nor is circumcision merely circumcision outwardly and physical. No, a person is a Jew 
who is one inwardly. And circumcision is circumcision of the heart, by the spirit, not by a written code. Such a person's praise is not from other people, but from God. May the Lord add the blessing to the reading of his word this morning. So in verse 17... It says, Now you, if you call yourself a Jew and you rely on the law and boast in God. Paul points out three things in this verse. If you call yourself a Jew, you who understands himself to be a Jew as a member of the nation of Israel, God's chosen people, it was a high honor. Paul knows his standing of calling himself a Jew. Paul referred to himself as the Hebrew of Hebrews. Paul is calling them out for who they were. They were an exclusive club. They were God's chosen people. They were on the in crowd. We all want to be on the in crowd. All our lives, we all want to be on the in crowd, whether it's at our jobs, or in our own families sometimes. Whatever we do, we all want to be on the in crowd. And that was no different the Jewish people, they were it, and they knew they were it. Paul goes on and says, If you rely on the law, Paul says, Such a person may rely on the law. The law of Moses was a serious thing for Israel. It was also a gift. The revelation of God's standards for how to live on earth. The law was given to Israel and no other nation. And you, boasting God, Paul says, this person, a Jew, who relies on the law, can also boast in God. Paul is not describing selfish bragging. The Jewish people could rightfully boast that the one true God was their God and they were his people. Their glory as a people was found in belonging to a glorious God. Many of the Jews at that time relied on the law and boasted in a relationship to Yahweh and claimed to know his will since they were instructed out of the law. The Jewish people had it all. They had favored status. They were God's people. They relied on the law. They boasted in the Lord. They had it all going for them. In verse 18, Paul continues, If you know his will and approve of what is superior because of your instructed by the law, Paul points out that they know God's will. Now he further defines his people he is talking to. These people do not simply rely on the law of Moses. They know God's will. They use his law as a standard by which to decide if anything is excellent. They do this because they have been so well taught from the law. Paul was building up the Jewish people for all their knowledge and understanding of the law. The larger point Paul is about to make is their misplaced confidence. These people have confidence that God will not judge their sins because of their identity. Because they identify with the law, their assurance is aimed in the wrong place. Paul uses this idea to show the Jewish people, that they are guilty 
as the Gentiles. In verse 19, Paul continues down the same path of just calling them out for who they are, for what they believe in. If you are convinced that you are a guide for the blind and light for those in the darkness. So the Jewish people were convinced that they were a guide for the blind and a light for the darkness. A person can serve as a guide to the blind and light to those in the darkness. In other words, God gave his law only to Israel. Thus, they had the opportunity to show everyone else what was true and who God was. They possessed the light of God's truth and what others needed. All this building up is leading to show how religious Jews are hypocrites. Paul is asking that if all these things are true for Jewish people, why don't they live according to the law? This is part of Paul's plan of showing that even God's chosen people fall short of the standard of perfection. Moreover, this supports Paul's point that all people need to be saved by grace through faith apart from their own works. How about yourself? Have you ever been called a hypocrite? You know, often it comes from someone close to us. You know, sometimes someone in your families that are unsaved and they know the life we're trying to live, they'll say, all you churchgoers, you're just a bunch of hypocrites. And sometimes I have to agree with them because sometimes I am a hypocrite and they're right. But the part they miss, that we're saved through grace. We're no different than them. The only difference between us and them is Jesus Christ. That we have Christ and we have God's grace. And so, yeah, sometimes we behave like hypocrites. Sometimes it's very similar that we have the light, but are we light to other people? Very similar to how the Jewish people at that time, they knew. They knew God's word and they knew that they were to be the light. Verse 20. An instructor of the foolish, a teacher of little children. Because you have the law, the embodiment of truth, of knowledge and truth. Paul continues with this attitude of the Jewish people. Not only are they called God's people, they are privileged because of the law. Paul has been building up a powerful if and then statement. If and then statement. Paul asks, if such a person relies on the law and boasts in God and is sure he is a guide to the blind, then he includes that such a person see himself as an instructor to the foolish people who do not have God's law. Does he see himself as a teacher of the law, an adult to children? And if this Jewish person really has a law, God's law, which embodies the acknowledgement of truth, then Paul is asking the following verses. Paul will ask in the following verses, why don't they follow the law? In verse 21, you then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? You who preach against stealing, do you steal? Paul makes the point that the Jews here are clearly not following the law. 
Paul has a mindset <clears throat> that the Jewish readers, <clears throat> excuse me, Paul has set his Jewish readers up for a series of difficult questions. His larger purpose is to challenge those who are assuming that being Jewish means that you, know, you do not have to worry about God judging them for their sinfulness. They believe the law of Moses stands between them and God. In a broader sense, this point is meant to apply to anyone who tries to lie on their own religious belief in order to be right with the Lord. If you are a devoted Jew, if you rely on the law, if you boast in God, if you are sure you are a guide to the blind, if you are a teacher to foolish and to children, if you truly have the law, which you believe to be the embodiment of truth and knowledge, then why don't you follow it? Paul's point is clear. Having the law is not enough. You must also keep it. This is a high standard. A high standard was set for God's people. They knew what the standard was. They knew they were called by God. They knew they had the law. They could boast that they had the law. They knew they were God's people, but they still made a choice. They made a choice of how they were going to live. And the interesting point is, they thought they were okay. Because they had all these things, they thought it was enough. They thought it was enough for their salvation that they had these things. But it wasn't. And Paul's going to point that out to them. That what they have isn't enough. We're going to look at verse 22 and 23 together. You who say, you who say that people should not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who harbor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law, do you dishonor God by breaking the law? Paul has shown that through these religious Jews, hold the law as their sacred and special connection in God, but they do not keep it. They believe having the law of Moses given by God was enough to make them righteous with God. They didn't believe God would judge them for their sins. An honest assessment of our own lives reveals that we cannot perfectly keep any moral code. It tells us that in Romans 3.10 then why would a devoted Jew think they were exempt from God's wrath if they kept the law, if they did not keep the law he gave them? So in verse 24, it says, As it is written, God's name is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. God is dishonored by Israel's own actions. By breaking the law of Moses, they give God a bad name among the Gentiles. Seeing that Jewish people break their own law, the God-given law, while looking down on others, the Gentiles respond by, breaking, by speaking blaspheme about Israel's God. Once again, Paul is pointing out that they are hypocrites. Everyone deserves God's judgment as a result of their sin. 
The law only helps to reveal sin. Salvation must come from another source. This highlights an important point, which applies to believers in Christ today. When those who claim to be Christians and behave unchristlike, it dishonors God. And that can apply to any of us. We all like to have a standard that Christ has set for us. But that's a standard to live up to. And it's a high standard to live up to. No different than the high standard the Jewish people were called to live up to. And myself, I fall short of that standard all the time. But the difference between us and them is grace. God's grace is sufficient for today. Non-believers see our sins and claim that we are no better than they are. And once again, they're right. We are no better. The only difference is we are saved through grace. And they're watching us all the time, right? Your coworkers are watching you. Your families are watching you. Your students are watching you, Jeff. They're all watching how we behave. And they're thinking we should live at a standard that's up to here. And we should. We should all live a high standard. But only through grace are we able to live to that standard. And when we fail, we know the answer. John 1, 9 says, confess our sins. So we just confess that fault and move on. Okay, <clears throat> Paul's word tells us, don't stand and look at where you fell down. Get up and run the race that, was called, that you've been called to. So we just get up and keep going. We don't have to stand there and look at where we failed. Verse 25. Circumcision has value if you observe the law. But if you break the law and you have, you have become as though you have not been circumcised. Paul agrees with this statement. Paul now answers the next question or objection coming from the Jewish mindset. And you could see these people there. What about circumcision? As a question, Paul, being circumcised in obedience to God's command to Abraham and his descendants ensured that Israelites would be identified as God's people, the Jews. And apparently many Jewish people believed that, believed that those who were circumcised were by definition saved. They would not be judged by God if they broke the law. The ritual for them was enough to establish their salvation. Paul disputes that idea, but he does not discard circumcision itself. Verse 26. So then, if those who are circumcised keep the law, for those who are not circumcised keep the law's requirements, Will they not be regarded as those who were circumcised? Paul goes even further. If a Gentile, an uncircumcised non-Jewish man, adheres to the principle of the law, but lacks the physical circumcision, would not prevent him from being regarded by God as someone who is circumcised. Paul is teaching that everything comes down to whether a person keeps God's law or not. This applies to everyone both Jew and Gentile. Paul demonstrates that nobody is able to keep the law. This means that everybody deserves God's judgment, that salvation must be found elsewhere. Verse 27, 
The one who is not circumcised physically and yet obeys the law will condemn you even though you have the written code and circumcision and are a lawbreaker. Paul has painted a picture of two men. One is Jewish and circumcised and under the law of Moses. He breaks the law. The other, a Gentile, uncircumcises, but he keeps the law of Moses. Paul concludes that the Gentile law keeper will condemn the Jewish lawbreaker even though he has been given the law by God and has been circumcised. Verse 28. A person is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor circumcision merely outward and physical. Paul adds another shocking statement in this verse. In essence, that when it comes to being judged by God, Jewishness doesn't even matter. The ritual of circumcision, which defines someone as part of the Jewish community, is meaningless when not accompanied by obedience. Only those circumcised and keep the law will be declared righteous. That gets us to verse 29. No person is a Jew who is one inwardly. And circumcision is circumcision of the heart by the spirit, not by a written code. Such a person's, such a person's praise is not from other people, but from God. Paul concludes this section by defining what it requires to be truly Jewish. Paul was born a Jew, lived as a devout Pharisee, was converted in faith in Jesus Christ. He was fully qualified to address this issue. Paul has indicated that true Jewishness is not about mere birth or circumcision, but a condition of the heart, a circumcision of the heart. Paul insists that Jewishness must be sincere from the inside out. This basic principle applies to the Christian faith as well. Labels and behavior are not what matters. It is faith which identifies us as true believers in Jesus Christ. I think this is the point where P.D. says, okay, well, we need to wrap this up. Israel had an advantage. They had the law. They knew they were God's chosen people. We also have an advantage. We know God's word. We know the whole story. From the beginning to the end, we read the end of the book. We know how this ends. We know Christ died for us. We can have our faith in Christ. We have the Holy Spirit. We have an advantage just as Israelites had an advantage back then. We are still sinners saved by grace. By grace that gives the same, we need to give that same grace to other people. The only way they're going to know us as being God's people is from our heart. And we need to extend that grace to them. Ephesians 2.8 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And 2.9 says, It is not of works, least any of us could boast. And I always like to say, if you want to boast, boast in God. Boast in Christ 
Boast in what he has done for you. Religious people dishonor God. We must live a life that honors God. We must be seekers of God. We must be doers of the word. And we must be light to the world. If we're not light to the world, where are they going to see it? They are all looking to us to be light to the world. Ephesians 4.1 says, As a prisoner for the Lord, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. It's a high standard. It's a high standard for us to live to the life of the calling we have received. Religious people have a heart condition. It's a matter of the heart. What is your heart condition? What is your spiritual heart condition? We must have a changed heart. We must have a heart that honors God. Ezekiel 36, 26 says, I will give you a new heart. I will put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. So this is a band you come please come up. So what's the conclusion? What's your spiritual heart condition? A circumcision of the heart is to have a relationship with Jesus Christ. A changed heart will lead to a changed lifestyle that honors and glorifies God. For us, is God changing your life? I'm sure he is. He's changing mine. He continues to change my life. The past 15 weeks for myself have been pretty rough. I see more doctors than I've probably ever seen in my life. But I have gotten something from it. I had no idea how people deal with chronic sickness. I had no idea how it affects you mentally. I do now. And God's changing my heart through this. I don't know where we're headed, but I know God's got a plan. God's got a plan for me just as he does for you. So if you seek God, he will change your heart. So... Let us pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this time we get to spend together, Lord. Thank you for your word, Lord. May your spirit just circumcise our heart, Lord. May we have a heart for you. I ask this in your precious name, Jesus. Amen.